DamascusCitizens.org. This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard has a Star Talk report explaining circumpolar stars. Christine San Jose narrates seasonal writings along the poet's row. Stephanie Phillips continues her conversation with Mike Medley. In her segment Now You Know, she and Mike share information about hiking in our area. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country here on Radio Catskill. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News, I'm Barbara Klein. An engineering report acquired by NPR shows serious concerns were raised nearly three years ago about the Surfside condominium that partially collapsed Thursday. The report called for major repairs, including of the structure's concrete beams. NPR's Brian Mann reports. The study conducted by a firm called Mirabito Consultants was sent to the condominium association that operated the building back in October 2018. It pointed to widespread concerns with deteriorating concrete, water penetration into the building, as well as design and construction flaws that needed to be remedied, quote, in the near future. It's not clear that any of the issues cited in the report led directly to the building's collapse early Thursday morning. Four people are confirmed dead, more than 150 residents of the condominium are still missing. The search for survivors continues around the clock, but that effort has been hampered by heavy rains and by a fire still burning in the rubble. Brian Mann, NPR News, Miami Beach. Surfside's mayor today announced an audit of all 40-year-old buildings in the area to review structural safety. George Floyd's family members say they're disappointed in Derek Chauvin's 22-and-a-half-year prison sentence. The former Minneapolis police officer was sentenced yesterday for murdering George Floyd. Prosecutor Steve Schlischer, part of the team that sought a 30-year sentence, tells ABC News he's not complaining. 22-and-a-half years is a significant period of time. It's a significant sentence, and it's 10 years over what the standard sentence would be. Under Minnesota law, Chauvin will be eligible for parole in about 15 years, but he still faces federal charges. The northwestern U.S. is bracing for a historic heat wave that could bring some of the hottest temperatures ever recorded. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports there are concerns over the power grid keeping up. Excessive heat advisories are in effect from Portland to Boise to western Montana. In typically temperate Portland, forecasters are predicting by early next week the temperature could hit 109. Like with Texas last winter, here there are serious concerns that the power grid could get severely strained because it wasn't built with this kind of extreme weather in mind. Health officials are also worried about vulnerable populations, including the elderly, and the heat is also a big concern for wildfire managers in a region facing and historic drought. Federal meteorologists are wary of pinpointing any one event like this on climate change, but they warn these types of extreme heat waves in regions like this could be the new norm. 
Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Boise. The southern plains are facing excessive rainfall. This is NPR. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections, with showrooms at Lake Wallenpapak, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Christine San Jose narrates seasonal writings along the Poets Row. Stephanie Phillips continues her conversation with Mike Medley from Mamicating. In this segment of Now You Know, Stephanie and Mike share information, tips on hiking in the Bashakil area. But first, Keith Hubbard has a Star Talk report explaining circumpolar stars. Thank you for joining us for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. Country, I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. A large majority of the stars in our sky rise in the east and set in the west, creating great arcs across the sky. These stars also appear only at certain times of the year. These stars also rise and set at different times depending on the time of year. While this is true for most of the stars in the sky, it is not true for all of the stars. There are stars that neither rise nor set, but remain in the sky all night long. Not only are these stars in the sky all night, but they are in the sky every night of the year as well. The stars that are always in the sky are called circumpolar stars. Circumpolar stars trace circles around the North Celestial Pole. At the North and South Poles, every star is circumpolar. But at the equator, no stars are circumpolar. For our listening area, the stars in four constellations, Draco, Cepheus, Cassiopeia, and Ursa Minor, and one asterism, the Big Dipper, are circumpolar. Together these stars appear to circle Polaris, which nearly coincides with the North Celestial Pole. At certain times of the year, the stars of the Big Dipper and Cassiopeia approach the horizon, but never drop below the horizon. Currently, both patterns of stars are well above the horizon. Make it a long night and watch as the circumpolar stars dance around Polaris. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. For WJFF and Farm and Country, this is Christine San Jose. Did I 
tell you, we've some comfortable benches along the poet's row, and today you might like to sit down and just concentrate on listening to our first three poets. First, from Emily Dickinson, a narrow fellow in the grass occasionally rides. You may have met him. Did you not? His notice sudden is. The grass divides as with a comb. A spotted shaft is seen, and then it closes at your feet and opens further on. He likes a boggy acre, a floor too cold for corn. Yet when a boy and barefoot, I more than once at noon have passed, I thought, a whiplash unbraiding in the sun, when stooping to secure it, it wrinkled and was gone. Several of nature's people I know, and they know me. I feel for them a transport of cordiality. But never met this fellow, attended or alone, without a tighter breathing and zero at the bone. On to our second one. From Marsha Niemeyer, our own Marsha, and she calls her poem different but the same. I live in a woods that once was a forest until loggers cut down every last pine and spruce and planted pin oak and red oak, different but the same each from the other. The trees grew slowly until a man, it surely was a man, said, Empty land, and divided it into squares on a map. Different from each other, but the same. People bought the squares on the map, dug square holes, poured squares of concrete, hammered squares of wood that came from distant trees, added light, water, heat. I live in one of those squares, where the deer come and eat every seedling, different from the others, but the same, until only a few trees stand. Fungus eats away at their bark, woodpeckers make holes, and when those holes get too big, squirrels move in, and then the owls, the same but different, each from the other. I shall not live to see the end of these trees. But I imagine the oaks falling one by one on this house, fungus eating away at the wood walls, making humus and loam. My body will be close by, up river a bit, food for worms. Different, but the same, in the end. <laughs> Thank you, Marsha. And the third one, from Dawn Watkins, Apelian, my friend in South Carolina, and she calls it first haying. What I remember most is not the oily exhaust, nor the sting of sweat, nor the stifling loft, not the bitter switchel, not the choke of chaff, nor the prickled skin, nor creaking wagons draught, but a breeze through screens, with warm hint of stable, and scraping back chairs from a midday table, a lull in the locusts and sun slipping by noon towards second milking and the last of mid-June. 
Well, snake, different or same, pain or pleasures, here's a message to see you through. Shared with us by highlights from F. Jen, nine, who lives in Wisconsin, who calls her poem The Sunflower. There was a daisy meadow where only one sunflower grew. Though the daisies made fun of her, sunflower remained true. While the daisies played near the ground, sunflower looked for the sun. At the end of the flower season, she was the tallest one. You may be different from everyone. Just stay strong and true. You won't be a good someone else, but you will be the best you. <laughs> oh, I love that. You won't be a good someone else, but you'll be the best you. This has been Christine San Jose for Farm and Country along the Poet Road. Now you know for Farm and Country. I'm speaking this morning with Mike Medley, longtime hike leader, about how to get the most out of a day on the trail. Mike, how long have you lived here and how did you happen to become a hike leader? Well, I've been in the area for probably 50 years, but the last 25 years was when I led most of my hikes, mostly on the Shangam Ridge, Ellenville area, uh, Mohonk, Minnewaska, and lately, in the last 20 years or so, here along the Bashakil, which is an entirely different environment than the higher mountain areas up above Ellenville. Mike, if you're a beginning hiker, how should you dress? What should you bring along? Yeah, if it's summertime, a uh, big concern is ticks. Usually we recommend that you wear your pants tucked in and shirt, and if you have any spray, put it around the edges of your boots and your pant legs and, and check yourself after each hike because they do crawl up under your shirt, under your collar, around your neck. Is there a particular season when the ticks are worse? Mm. Yeah, right now, spring. They're, actually, they they go well into the fall, too. Just because the weather gets cold doesn't mean you're going to not have ticks. You could have ticks pretty much almost all the time. There are a lot of them around. Usually when you go through vegetative areas, when you're brushing against plants, you'll get them. But you can get them. I, on all my hikes, I have people coming back. They're all going to have some ticks on them. Are you going to be walking through water? Do you need high boots? No, you don't need high boots, but you should have some kind of a low-cut boot of some sort because it is a wetland. Uh, but if you're hiking, some of the hikes, if they're up on the ridge, just need regular hiking boots. And people wear shorts. I wouldn't recommend that, but uh, you, you can when the weather gets real hot. Uh, headgear of some sort because sometimes the, the deer flies and the bugs can get to you. What about hiking poles? Do you use them, and do you recommend using them? Yeah, I recommend using them. 
especially on hikes that maybe you have to cross over a bouldery stream or you have to walk over a log where you need a little more balance. Some people use one, some people use two poles. Either one is good, but uh, yeah, they do help. They do help with your balance. Actually, it's a little less wear and tear on your hips and in your body when you do use them. So just an ordinary ski pole will do. And if you're going to pack a backpack to take along with you, what are you going to put in it? A backpack on a day hike? <laughs> Mainly food and water. <laughs> oh, you might have your camera. It's not uh, it's just your basic whatever you would be. Although I do say one thing they should have in their pack, make sure they have any medication that they use because I've had incidents where people couldn't continue hiking because they didn't take their medication or forgot to bring it with them. I like to have a backpack just because if it starts out cool in the morning, you may need some place to put your jacket when you take it off. People come usually usually overdress, and by noon they're peeling off the clothes. Uh, how much water do you take with you? Water and food. You know, oh, okay. the two two things that are automatically in the in the in the thing. Do you tend to focus on the scenery or on the wildlife? Both. It's always a thrill to see something rare or something that's not usually seen. There's some controversy over at Sam's Point about mountain lions being up there, and I have friends who have said they've seen them. The state will deny that there are any around or that they're escaped from someplace. You may run across a bobcat. They're beautiful to see. Have you ever seen a coyote? They're very elusive. Yeah, I've seen coyotes. Yeah, they're elusive. They're not well received. I mean, they supposedly do a lot of damage to the young deer. I've seen them here at the Bashakil also, coyotes. Not not a lot of them. You can hear them in the evening in, in some areas. So they're around. The scenery is the main reason why most people hike is for the scenery. So anything they see is extra. If you see an owl, or you see, they're always wonderful to see. They tend to swoop down kind of low, I think. When you see one, they look enormous. Yeah, when they spread their wings, they can be pretty good. And they're very silent. You hardly ever hear them. They just go through the woods so gracefully and easily. But usually you don't see them during the day. You see them got to be close to near the evening. Uh, when they're hunting. Mike, how big a group have you taken on a hike? I've had groups up to 25, and I know the New York, New Jersey Corral Conference, many of their groups have 40 and 50. That's unwieldy, and I don't particularly enjoy going on those hikes. For me, when I advertise a hike, I always put a limit of maybe 10 to 12. That would be a manageable size. You wouldn't want to go much more than that because they get so strung out. you got some people walking faster and some are slower, and I kind of position myself in the middle to try to keep everybody together. So 10 or 12 is usually ideal. With that size, you don't need a sweep then? I usually ask for a volunteer to be willing to sweep. What if somebody gets tired and wants to go back? How do you handle that? I've had that happen once or twice. One time, somebody volunteered to go back with the person, curtail their hike and walk back with the person, which was very nice. And other times, the person has to either walk back on their own, or in one case, we had a large group, and we got to a point we couldn't go any further. There was a stream that we couldn't ford. It was early in the spring, and it was a little dangerous to cross the stream. So the whole group hiked back. <laughs> it was really dangerous to cross it. 
If a person is going to have difficulty on the hike, you know that right away. When you go up your first incline or something, that person will let you know that I can't go any further. In that case, they can just turn around half a mile, quarter of a mile and walk out. They can kind of tell whether they'll be able to keep up with the group. And you're only as fast as your slowest walker anyway. You have to keep tabs on the end of your group. You have to kind of keep them somewhat together. That's a little bit of a problem because sometimes you get really young people and they're practically running through the trail and there are other people that are hanging way back. I kind of try to stay in the middle to keep everybody together. (laughs) So you've never lost anybody? Yes, I have. Oh! Yeah. Someone, one person got separated from the pack. And I didn't notice he was missing. It was pretty until we stopped for lunch. I said, "Well, I don't know. We're going to find him." But he—he he was good. He found his way out. He gave me a phone call that night when he got out. But I've never lost anyone to the point where it would be a, a, a real danger. You know, this was a, these were marked trails. We're not in a deep wilderness. You know. <laughs> Have hikers ever brought children or pets along? And how does that work out? Children work out pretty well. I don't really want pets on the hike they can be the most well-mannered pet in the world but you meet other people on these hikes and some of them do not want to encounter a dog and i've had issues where one person did have a dog on my hike well two issues one where we hiked into rakitakil falls and the dog had a heart attack and died around the trail and we had to bury the dog there and then another time at sam's point a dog was chasing a uh, something and it went right off the edge of the cliff but generally speaking you got to be aware of other people so i discourage people from taking them children are a different story Uh, depending on the age some of them are wonderful and some are going to whine and cry all the way there (laughs) that's a delicate issue so before i let children on the hike i have to know from the parent what is their experience have they been on hikes before can you think they can do this Sometimes they'll turn around and go back. Most of the time they come. If it's going to be a long, strenuous hike, I I, I would discourage them. Have you ever had an emergency situation on a hike, and how did you handle it? No, I had one person who uh, didn't take their medication and couldn't walk anymore. So I let the group go ahead. There was a trail. They could follow it. And I stayed with her and kind of walked them out slowly, but it took a long time. And then I had another issue where a person broke a bone in their foot. They could hardly walk. That was at Sam's Point. So we got to a point where I knew Sam's Point personnel, because I worked up there. I said, well, send somebody up with a truck and somebody, and we'll get this person down. So we got her to a point where they could reach her, and then they took her out and rode her down on the truck. Those are the only two that I could think of. Yeah, I've actually been on a hike where... Somebody had an allergic reaction to a bite and or a sting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And one of the other hikers had Benadryl, so you have to put some thought into a first aid kit. That's something I should have mentioned. Well, it should be in the leader's pack, and never mind other people's pack. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I, I carry an emergency pack with me. I've also been on a hike where somebody became dehydrated because they didn't bring enough water, <laughs> and that's a real mistake. That's, that's a mistake. That's something you can, you know, somebody will have enough water usually, but, yeah, you've got to make sure they have enough uh, enough water. Mike, I notice you've led quite a few cleanup hikes. How much of a problem is litter on the trails? Well, I don't lead that many litter hikes, but I've had cleanups, especially here along the Bashikil. We do a major cleanup. We get about 60 or 80 people, and we clean up the whole area. 
I've had at Sam's Point, groups would come up with busloads of hikers, and they would trash some of those trails. So what I would do in that case when I was working up there, I would tell the leader before they got back on the bus, they had to go back up to the trail and pick up all their litter, which they weren't happy about because a lot of the camps would send down groups of, to hike in Sam's Point and areas, and, and they, they weren't too good. I find hikers generally will, you don't even have to tell them, they'll pick up hike, they'll pick up trash automatically. <laughs> do you keep a bag for trash in your backpack? Yeah, I do, and I encourage people to do the same. There's one person around here who's very good, Andy Garris. He's one of the head of the trail maintenance people. He has access to heavy equipment and put in some of these trails. He's got to move some pretty big rocks. <laughs> are there hiking clubs? What hiking clubs are you aware of? Well, the biggest one is going to be North New Jersey Trail Conference. They put out a bulletin that lists all the hiking clubs from the northern Catskills all the way down to Bear Mountain. And there's about 50 of them. And they list the clubs and the hikes that they're leading. And it covers the whole, uh, the Catskills, the Hudson Valley, even into New Jersey. And their headquarters in Mawa, New Jersey. Locally, there's a Catskill hiking group, I think, Lisa Lyons. Yeah, she leads the senior strollers. She would lead some of those hikes in Walnut Mountain. I used to hike with the Appalachian Mountain Club, but this would be kind of the northernmost area that they would reach, maybe as far as the Ellenville Caves. I don't know that they had hikes any further north than that. We lead our hikes here, Bashakil. It's not a hiking club. We have a good turnout. I see that you work with the Bashakil Area Association, and you've done that for many years. Your wife is a major force. Mm-hmm. Can you just say a little bit about the BKAA? Well, if it was my wife, we'd be here for the next half hour or so. It's an organization that's been around for, I think we celebrate our 50th anniversary coming up. DEC purchased these acres here, the wetland, back in the 50s. It's a wildlife management unit. It's not a preserve. I mean, you can hunt here, you can fish here, you can hike here. They even let you trap here. It's all managed by the DEC, and the DEC gives us authority to do the cleanups, the education, the water monitoring. We kind of manage it. And we have about 800 members, $10 a year dues, and you get four newsletters each year that we put out. We also are very involved with the surrounding area, of course. Everything lands up in the Bashakil from around the area. It's a low spot, so all the streams lead into here. So we're concerned with development, and we're involved in a, sometimes litigation with stopping some of the development up on the hills surrounding the Bashakil. Everything's going to come down here. And we have a board of about 12 members. We're a little bit involved with local politics. That little bit, I think, in the early days was quite a lot of involvement in order to get conservation awareness and conservation initiatives going. And it still is, you know, when they wanted to put the mushroom plant up in here and take out 500,000 gallons of water a day to stuff like that. You had to deal with Pennsylvania, the Water Commission over there. They had jurisdiction. Yeah, it's not just trails, it's the whole environment. We do monitor the water quality here. We have some sophisticated, expensive equipment that we use. So we're very concerned when we see fish dying. People do throw some crazy things in there sometimes. Yeah, and the same with the eagles. Occasionally somebody might shoot one. 
or sometimes if one is injured. We work with all the rescue wildlife agencies in the area. Uh, Bill Streeter over in Pennsylvania, we work with up in Saugerties, we, and there are three or four groups that we work with regularly for um, injured wildlife. So now you know how to prepare for and enjoy hiking around here. Our hiking expert has been Mike Medley, longtime volunteer for the Bashakil Area Association. If there's something you'd like to know about country life, email me, stephanie at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. Hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by volunteers Keith Hubbard, Christine San Jose, and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guest, Mike Medley, from the Mamacating Environmental Center, speaking to us on the topic of hiking in the Bashakil area. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on WJFF Radio Catskill. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org NPR is celebrating 50 years, which is perplexing to some of our biggest fans, like, say, Stephen Colbert. Morning Edition has a measured barbiturate vibe that I just don't, just doesn't jibe with the idea of a morning zoo. Where's the craziness? Where's the Mike and the Mad Dog? Where's 